Welcome to the Make Ready with the Experts podcast. I'm your host, Fernando Coelho. We're here at Pantio Studios bringing you the very best from in and around the firearms industry, covering topics like guns, gear, firearms training, self-defense, and so much more. Everything from industry insights about the latest gear and training techniques, to hunting, survival, and empty hands. But this isn't just about the guns, folks. This is about the stories. The military, law enforcement, and civilian stories of heroics protecting our country, fellow citizens, friends, and neighbors. MakeReady.tv is the official website of Pantio Productions and features over 5,000 segments from world-famous instructors. With new video titles added each month, MakeReady.tv is widely known as the Netflix of firearms training. However, we really do go beyond that. We have survival series. We have empty hands. We have edged weapons. We cover armorer skills. We've done documentaries, even medical and hunting. With your subscription, you will have access to an extensive library of videos. To be quite honest, we got a lot. Be sure to visit MakeReady.tv and subscribe today to stream our exclusive content to any device, anywhere, anytime. This is content that just may save your life or the life of someone you love. I had the opportunity to sit down with Larry Vickers, longtime friend, and talk about various topics that are relevant from today and stuff that you may not know about from Larry's uh, background. We talked about COVID-19. Everyone's talking about COVID-19 nowadays. New gun owners, Somalia, circa 1993, as most of you would know, Black Hawk Down. Various books that Larry has produced and something else that you may not know about, the incident in Panama. Now, with Panama, we're talking about Six Minutes to Freedom, uh, the incident where Kurt Muse was rescued from a prison in Panama, and uh, Larry Vickers was part of that assault. So let's get into it. It's me and Larry at the Pantier Range facility. So Larry, here we are at the range. Great day. Filming again. Yes, filming again. Beautiful day, man. This is, this is awesome. I did not expect it to be this good. Yes. Um, but once again... Here we are, and when is it? It's during the whole COVID-19 yeah, thing. So, exactly. Um, a lot of people stuck at home. Yeah. Cabin fever. Yeah, big time. Everyone's watching videos now. Mm-hmm. Uh, YouTube is exploding. Netflix yeah. is exploding. Yeah. Hulu. Um, how has it been? How's the whole COVID thing been impacting you? Well, the cabin fever has been pretty severe. I'm not going to lie. Normally, I, you know, during this COVID-19 time frame, I'd have been out of the house, you know, every couple of weeks to do classes. I've had to cancel now three classes. Um, boy, it's really given me a new appreciation on being able to travel and interface with other gun guys and get to the range and shoot and teach classes. It has really, it's made me appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Not that I never did. I always appreciated it, but it just enhanced my appreciation of it, highlighted it, refocused my appreciation of it. So when I'm back on the road, te- back on the road teaching classes and going out and interfacing with shooters and stuff, I'm really, 
I'm going to be happy. I mean, I'm ecstatic to come here today and film. I mean, I was just, I was just a happy camper driving down here to do it straight up. It's been a weird thing for us because normally our production crew, we have guys from um, Atlanta. We have guys from Florida. We have guys here in um, South Carolina, from North Carolina. Hell, we have guys from Phoenix and across the entire country. It went from everyone's still working to TV shows on hiatus, mm -hmm. everyone's home, no crew are working, entire groups of guys are out of work, and that's never happened. Yeah, no, it never happened. My son asked me, he, he you know, son's 17, you know, and he asked me, is this all right? I go, oh, no, this has never happened before. Yeah. Not alone, not just in our lifetime, it's never happened before, period. This yeah. is all new territory. Yeah, absolutely. Never and happened before. What's interesting, too, is you have the celebrities out there right now. They're showing us their gyms at home and their big screen TVs and their, their ice cream and yeah. what they're doing. And it's like, <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? That, that's all you can do right now? Yeah. I mean, but from us and the industry side, you're right. You hit it spot on. It's a break. Oh, boy. It's, it's a good time between the trade shows, mm -hmm. between the running and gunning to classes and doing stuff um, to, to stop breathe, reevaluate, and decide, are we still really on the right path? Are we tracking the way we should be? Mm -hmm. Should we do a course correction? I mean, that usually just doesn't happen. Well, you know, and we're all running around doing stuff. Like you guys run around filming. I'm running around doing classes and doing stuff on my YouTube channel and all that. And we'd all agree, hey, a two week break, you know, <laughs> that's Excuse awesome. Me. Bless you there. <laughs> a two-week break is awesome. We're way past a two-week break now. Yeah. We're way past that. So yeah. it's okay. We checked the block for the two-week break. We need to, we, we want to get back to work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then now it's every state is different. So some states, I granted, New York got hammered. Oh, yeah. Okay. But other states did not have that same problem. So uh, other states just don't have that population density. Well, exactly. It's like my buddy Hackathorn said, you know, he lives in Idaho now, long lived in Ohio for forever. And he lives in Idaho now. And he said, you know, social distancing out here is a way of life. Yeah. And a lot, and, and you could even say in most of the country, you know, the lion's share of the country, social distancing is a way of life. So yeah. in order to, to somehow think that you have to completely shut everything down to zero, I, I think we're all kind of know now, okay, we did that. It's time to move on. Absolutely. Just tell people, wash your hands, you know, social, don't shake each other's hand, wash your hands, stay, you know, apart from each other and just let's move on. Use yeah. common sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then on the, on the flip side, you have the areas, uh, dense population, like Florida, Miami, Miami Beach, Daytona, and right in the middle of the peak of the COVID thing, everyone's on the beaches. Yeah. It's like, all right. At what point do we have to dictate, hey, use your common sense, yeah. folks, you know? Um, we're still in the peak craziness. People are getting it. We don't know where it's gonna, where it's gonna go. Now, we, we should be in the decline now. Yeah, as everyone in said. theory, right, we flattened the curve. Yeah, so but how many knuckleheads had to be out there on the yeah, beach? Yeah, that was, when you saw that, like right during spring break, you're like, come on, guys, yeah. come on. I understand yeah. spring break, but you're young. It's gonna be one of countless spring breaks. Let's. Let's keep it in perspective and do the right thing. Yep. I agree. And not for the conspiracy theory here, but you were a shot show. Mm -hmm. I was a shot. My God, 26 years now doing shot. 
And we always get the SHOT Show crud. Well, 50-50 shot. We're going to leave SHOT Show with a SHOT oh, yeah. Show crud. We're going to be sick for a week. Sure. Okay? This year, I was hearing from different parts of the industry, people were coming home sick with something they didn't have before. Doctors are going in going, hey, you have an upper respiratory infection. Haven't seen this before. Take this and, mm -hmm. and rest. So people were resting for a week, week and a half, finally getting over and just thinking, again, what is it? SHOT Show crud. Makes you wonder. Yeah, it does make you wonder. I mean, shot was what? Mid-January. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, mid, right to 22nd, 18th, 22nd, you know, three quarters of the way through January. Right? How many people come to shot and where do they come? Right, exactly. All over the world. Yep. So um, for all we know, some dude was licking a bat in the Wuhan. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it makes you wonder. If yeah. That wasn't, uh, yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty on that now. Yeah. That's a good point. You're right. It was weird because a bunch of people got shot show crud. I didn't. Uh, you know, many years I do. Uh, it's a given. It's a flip of the coin whether you're going to get it or not. Absolutely. I didn't this year, knock on wood, but a lot of people did. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky. I didn't get it. But then again, other people that I was with, seeing, I was right there with them at the show, and they got it. You know what's going to be interesting that you bring that up now? It'll be interesting. One thing to me is going to be interesting in moving forward is the handshaking routine yes you got to figure that's going to be greatly reduced absolutely absolutely it's not that it's going to go away no because it's kind of a you know you well, know somebody like shake their hand yeah, you know yeah but you, dave harrington you know what i mean yeah oh, of course you know what i mean yeah. and if you don't shake his hand he's, he's, he's gonna, gonna look like, at dude. you like dude <laughs> i mean you know the deal yeah but you know we've known each other a long time mm -hmm. it's easy to forget how long we've been in this industry Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus, um, you, you put your nose to the grindstone and all of a sudden, five years, 10 just years. Just go by like a blink of eye. We're all getting gray, mm -hmm. we're all getting older. Um, there was a time where you and I were the new guys in the industry mm -hmm. and everyone had the years in. Oh yeah. Now, dare I say it, we're the old guys. Old guys in the industry. A lot of the older guys are gone. Yeah. Hackthorn's still here and whatnot, but a lot of the ones are gone. Well. Bill Wilson, um, I still remember the day where Bill Wilson wasn't the old guy. Right. It was just one of the guys. One of the guys. You know, same thing mm -hmm. with Hackathon. Mm -hmm. um, now they're very much the old guys. God, years ago, I remember being a shot show and Hackathon is sacked on on my bed because he came over with um, Yoichi mm -hmm. uh, and, and he just crashes on the bed and we're here talking in the, in the hotel room and I feel like we're all younger mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden here we are now. I know. It, it's it's changed, um, but you know what also is something. As we're in the industry longer, mm -hmm. people don't know the backgrounds. Mm -hmm. They may know you as LAV, yeah, but they don't know your background. Right. They know you got the sling, you got uh, your YouTube channel, mm -hmm. uh, you consult with manufacturers, but but why are you here today? And your background, and they don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't get the, I mean, nowadays everyone is into, if they could read it on their phone in one paragraph or less, that's all they're going to know about yeah, you. Yeah, and a short paragraph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, one thing that I always wanted to talk to you about, and I remember when the book first came out, um, Kurt Muse, mm -hmm. about the situation in Panama. What was the name of that book? Uh, Six Minutes to Freedom. That was it, that was it. I remember when it first came out, a lot of people don't even remember that. Don't even remember oh, yeah. the whole 
Give me a little it's bit been of a rundown while ago now, yeah. on, 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 on Panama. Well, Noriega was in charge. The guy was basically a dictator, also a drug dealer. I mean, in a nutshell, that's what it is. He was dealing drugs on the side. He's a dictator and whatnot. And he had had uh, the United States through Reagan and then George Bush Sr., he was on the radar screen. And they were zeroed in on that guy. Mm -hmm. um, things started to go sideways. There was some altercations with some of their basically militia and whatnot with American servicemen that were down there because we still had guys stationed down there because of the Panama Canal. And then what we started doing was we started getting ready for, hey, if things go sideways, we're going to basically roll in and take over the country. And in the process of all this, in the process of basically anti-Noriega activities, uh, a guy who was doing stuff with the CIA got scarfed up. We got got it rolled up. That was Kurt, Kurt Muse. My fellow citizens, last night I ordered U.S. military forces to Panama. No president takes such action lightly. This morning, I want to tell you what I did and why I did it. For nearly two years, the United States, the nations of Latin America and the Caribbean have worked together to resolve the crisis in Panama. The goals of the United States have been to safeguard the lives of Americans, to defend democracy in Panama, to combat drug trafficking, and to protect the integrity of the Panama Canal Treaty. Many attempts have been made to resolve this crisis through diplomacy and negotiations. All were rejected by the dictator of Panama, General Manuel Noriega. Kurt Muse was a CIA operative and had been arrested in 1989 for setting up covert anti-Noriega radio transmissions in Panama. In the early hours of December 20, 1989, the United States began operations against Manuel Noriega and the Panamanian Defense Forces in Operation Just Cause. A couple hours before that, Operation Acid Gambit began, the mission to rescue Kurt Muse. This is an excerpt from an interview with Kurt Muse held at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Washington, D.C. General Noriega was a was a Panamanian military colonel who, through a series of coups, came to, came to power in Panama City. He was a drug runner. He was a money launderer. He was a murderer. He was a thief uh, and a lot of other adjectives. You know, there comes a time and, and at least in my life, where, where, where enough's enough. And in my particular case, that happened one day when I was taking my son, my 12-year-old son, Eric, to school. I became to a Panamanian Army roadblock. And the soldiers reached in the, reached in the car to, for, to, check, to check us out, to search the car, and to get our identity papers. And I saw the look on my 12-year-old son's face. It was a look of absolute sheer terror. I thought to myself, you know, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm not a rich person. I don't have the wherewithal to leave the country. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have him leave the country. And I started pro-democracy underground radio station to overthrow the dictator and restore democracy. You read the book, 
he basically alludes to the fact that he wasn't doing, he did agency stuff later on, but, and that all remains up in the air. But bottom line was when he was scarfed up, some of his local assets rolled over on him and he got scarfed up and he got put in um, Modelo prison, which was basically their primary prison in Panama City. And literally like two, just a stone's throw, like a couple blocks over from um, the, the essentially the Panamanian Pentagon. Oh, okay. Okay. There was just a couple blocks over. So he was in the premier prison and he was in a special cell for that area. You know, I mean, he was kind of in a VIP cell, if you will, right. you know, for being in a, a third world prison. He held for nine months, if memory serves me correct. And George Bush Sr. had been the director of the CIA before he was president. Mm -hmm vice president and president and whatnot. Well, he obviously you know, had an affinity for that organization. They put in plans that we they, that guy was gonna be rescued, he was gonna be broken out of the prison prior to any invasion going on because they he'd had threats against him that if there was any kind of an invasion or any kind of an attempted takeover, we were gonna kill you right off the bat. We've oh, been okay. told that. And we the Panamanians would actually allow a an a, a army, a U.S. Army doctor to go in there every week for visits and, you know, to, for health and welfare. Mm -hmm. And um, he would check on Kurt Muse. Well, he was also providing intel on where Kurt Muse was at in the prison, you know, what the prison layout was like, what the doors looked like, you know, just giving us intelligence. Right, right. So there started to be a plan formulated to rescue him. It was handed off to Delta. Uh, it was a mission that kind of passed around Delta a little bit. And I remember hearing Scuttlebutt uh, about it. And then when the Panama invasion went down, it just so happened the A squadron had the mission. I was an A squadron and I was an A2 troop and we had the mission um, to go in and get him. And the key, the thing was, it was going to be, I want to say half hour, 45 minutes prior to the invasion kicking off. Well, the timeline slipped and it ended up being about 15 minutes before. So we're gonna roll in, and then when things go loud, we're already on the prison. That's the, the plan to rescue Muse before the actual invasion of Panama was for a very important reason. The U.S. had been told by Panamanian officials that any attempt to invade Panama would result in the immediate execution of Muse. The solution? Grab Muse first, invade the country second. We, we ended up taking little birds in, you know, very small birds, and they'd taken equipment out of them and stuff like that so we could get as max individuals, max personnel. Each guy had to weigh himself, you know, the amount of ammo you're carrying, you know, body armor, helmet. I mean, everything had to be weighed. It was super, super exact because it was a fairly short flight from the Air Force Base, Howard Air Force Base, where we were at, but weight was so critical. Because okay. they wanted to, they knew we needed to be able to go in and get out and take Muse out with us. Right. And they would guesstimate his weight. It was a real, you know, it was, and it, two of the four little birds were involved in the operation, and two of them had two pilots, one, and two of them had one pilot. So there was, you know, not, not every bird had two pilots. Now, was that the 160th that flew you in? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep, sure was. 160th. Um, and it was, it was interesting because later on, for whatever reason, we got this false sense that, you know, you could carry more people than they could. And, you know, you don't understand. You, we took in five and six dudes. That was a special deal. We stripped out equipment. We, you know, normally we can't carry these many guys. 
And then that, it was interesting, just kind of lessons learned as time went on. Everybody goes, oh, you can just hold six guys wherever you go. No, 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 no. That was, <laughs> you know, it was like <laughs> taking out equipment and all kinds of other stuff that need, didn't need to be in there right. in order to reduce the weight. So the theory was go in with that. Now, another lesson learned was, is we should have thought about a different exfil. We also exfilled with the, the little birds, but the little birds work best in stealth. When it, you know, it's dark, the little birds are dark. You can't really see them. You can hear them, but you can't really see them. But once you're on top of a building, which is basically a giant bullseye, now having them come in to exfil was probably not the best plan. Okay. So a couple of them got shot, you know, a couple of them got hit. And then there was some issues with guys and personnel. And so one of them, the one that Kurt Muse had was in, ended up having to kind of do a, I wouldn't say crash landing, but kind of had to do a force landing. Okay. Okay. Adjacent to the prison. And then they started to kind of get things sorted out and started going down the road after this, of course, after we rescued him and they started to take off and then they got shot and then the bird crashed. Fortunately, we had a ground evacuation contingency and we had guys in APCs, armor personnel carriers and whatnot that got directed into their location. So the guy, the contingency, and they were there in case we could not come out via helicopter. Okay. They were there in case we had to fast rope over the side and go out that way. Well, as it turned out, they rolled in and now Fortunately, they're there to evacuate the wounded guys, the wounded guys, Delta guys. Sure. Because um, a couple guys would have died. They'd have bled to death. But we had medics on, you know, with the APCs and whatnot. We were able to get Kurt Muse out and everything, you know, other than some dudes being wounded. Right. And, you right. know, I mean, everything came out okay. Uh, I, was, I was interrogated nonstop four days, three nights and four days. And the book details all the horrors that, that entails. This is not your Abu Ghraib prison. This is this is this is a third world prison with, with horrible, horrible people running the prison system. Um, I survived that, and I was put into into a, into a prison, a prison called Modelo Prison, uh, for nine months. And there was nine months I was in solitary confinement. I saw, I could see sunlight, but I only saw the sun four times in nine months. As the chopper lifted off, it took serious ground fire. An operator was hit in the chest and toppled out of the helicopter 20 to 30 feet to the ground. Another operator grabbed a hold of his gear to hold on to him and was pulled out as well. The little bird was peppered with fire and crashed on its right side. The skid pinned Delta operator James Southers' ankle. All four operators were wounded, but Muse and the pilots escaped without injury. But now, <clears throat> let's back up a bit. It's a prison, mm -hmm. it's high security prison, fortified facility. Granted, Delta guys, but still, how did you go from Xville to finding Kurt? And what did well, you we had do? a new, we had an idea where he was at, okay. and he was. He was in the, the cell. We were two, he was two floors down, um, and we came in through the roof, and. We knew there was a roof entrance. We just didn't really know how strong the door was. We just couldn't, other than getting flybys and pictures, we just, we saw it was a, you know, it was a, it was a barred door, you okay. know, which, but we just didn't know. Well, it was a cheesy third world, you know, prison door. It was nothing. So we went in with a charge that would rock your world, pee for plenty. 
and and blew that thing. Yeah, I mean we, you know, we yeah, it was no issues getting through that door. Right, we, right. like I said, we went pee for plenty. We made sure we had enough charge to get through the door. Okay, and then worked our way down to the floor he was in, and then went in and located him. The one thing they knew his guard uh, was a catty corner across the hall from him. And so they went into that room and eliminated him, and then they went to his room and got him out. Okay. And we exfilled the same way. And one in, one thing I'll never forget. One of the things that was acted as a diversion at the same time was the AC-130 gunship started hammering. When the invasion actually kicked off, okay. the AC-130 gunship started hammering the commandancy over here. I mean, we were in, and set cars on fire, and it kind of set a shanty town on fire. And it was it was like something. You know, out of a you know end of the world apocalypse type movie, and that was all going on over here, and we're getting ready to exfil. And you once it was quiet, and we were waiting on the helicopters to come back. You could hear the prisoners screaming, because you got to figure the prisoners are in there. They hear this gunfire, they hear this explosion, they hear this other gunfire from the commandancy getting hammered by the AC-130 gunship. They know there's five. I mean, these people are petrified. Right. And so they figure, just think about it. They figured this place is going to catch on fire and we're going to burn to death inside these, inside this, you know, in this side of this cage. Think yeah, about that. Yeah, no, that's true. And I tell you, when you heard somebody scream that's in fear of their life, like legitimately yeah. in fear of their life, you never forget it. It's nothing like you see on TV or movies or anything like that. It's when somebody is screaming and they are, they are, legitimately convinced they are going to die um it, it it's haunting and i'll never forget that because there was a pause we were we called for exfil we were on the stairs muse was there and he was he was trying to melt into the stairs he was like holy cow yeah. i'm sure he was overwhelmed yeah but we're waiting and i remember hearing those dudes scream i'll never forget it it was like whoa wow another thing going in we did all kinds of live fire rehearsals and everything, um, which were excellent. But as I remember we came in and I remember looking over and there was something on fire and I thought, oh man, this is this is this is real now. This is the real deal because during none of the rehearsals did we have fire. <laughs> we, you know, this whatever it was, a building or a car yeah. or something was on fire. Man, we got fire now. This is real. <laughs> now it's and real. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, prior to that, we'd had live explosions, live ammo. We had all that stuff, but yeah. we didn't have any fire. So that. <laughs> In my mind, made it real. I've never got to, but yeah, the screaming, I'll never forget it. Wow. Those dudes screaming, because they're convinced they were going to die. And they ended up staying there. Yep. And then it was interesting. We went later, and they'd let everybody out. Oh, Yeah, okay. we went later. Now, a few days. Okay. They basically, we got Muse out, and things had evolved and whatnot, and then Noriega was in the Vatican embassy, surrounded, and he eventually gave up. But during that process we kind of went and we went back to the prison to kind of look you know check it out and it was it was empty it was okay. completely empty. all the all the prisoners were gone i don't know where they went if they if somebody just came in and opened the doors and let them go yeah yeah but it, yeah so now when you guys were down the ground so now the mission's changed you're not getting out on a bird i was on the second bird and i i, I got out of there the first bird went down and we went back to Howard Air Force Base. Uh, one of the pilots got hit. So one of the pilots of one of the birds had two, two pilots, fortunately, got hit and had to be carried away. He, was, he survived but um, to get treated. 
but only third helicopter, three helicopters landed. And I remember my team sergeant came up, my team leader said, hey, you know, we're gonna have to go back in because the other bird went down. And I went, oh man, yeah. we rescued this guy, we got out, we won the Super Bowl, and we just found out we fumbled on the goal line. You know what I mean? Right. right. Now, as it turns out, everything, but I went, Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. But bird one was the only one that went down. It happened to be the one with Kurt Muse on it. Yeah, yeah. And then, unfortunately, that we had the contingency plan. And then we got word, hey, he's coming back. They've got him. Everybody's okay. And He must have been one happy dude. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, man. Yeah, he calls that. every year. He calls everybody who's on the mission. Nice. And, and you know, just the, every anniversary, December 20th of every year, and he that, calls and reaches out to him. Then that book came out. Worst case, if he can't get you on the phone, he sends you an email. But he calls nice. every year. Nice. Now, you didn't forget? Nope. Oh no. He knows his ass would probably still be there. Well, he, he always says, you know, I I pay I happily pay my taxes every year. <laughs> I don't even I I write the check and with a smile on my face every year. Think he's still doing these uh, radio <clears throat> broadcasts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, I was going to be executed, and U.S. Army Delta Force operators swooped into prison, and an incredible rescue mission saved me right before I was going to be executed. Unfortunately, our helicopter was shot down, so it all became, it was another saga. So a couple more chapters of us on the ground having been shot down and having the bad guys sort of trying to get us. We survived that as well. And, uh, and then I was reunited with my family on uh, December 20th, 1989, which you can well imagine was uh, the best Christmas ever for the Muse family. And to this day, uh, just so your, your your viewing audience realizes this, that all the folks that participated in that mission, uh, many of them were wounded. In fact, the majority of them were wounded. They all returned to duty, and they all all of them retired uh, honorably from service in uh, in this Army's elite unit. And we're all I'm very very close to them now. Uh, they're like they're like brothers from a different mother, and we keep we keep in touch. Yeah. What's cool now, you of course, now that's been, oh my God, it was in 89, so it's been 30 years. Yeah. But, you know, his kids are grown now, and they've got grandkids, so it's awesome. You know, the whole thing is, is they, great. They need to do a movie about that. Yeah, they do. I um, that They've talked about it at times. I've talked to a guy who was going to do a movie kind of on the whole Just Cause thing, and, and uh, Kurt Muse Rescue was going to be obviously a key piece of it. I don't know where that's at. I'm surprised by now they haven't had a movie. Yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, well, look, you had you had Panama, Noriega, Kurt Muse. What happened after that? Mm. We had uh, Somalia. Mm. Well, and you had Desert Storm, well, of course. Desert Storm. Desert yes. Storm. Well, that was and that was they they've they've covered that in films as well, mm -hmm. um, and it was it was brief uh, by by standards of other battles. Yes. Um, um, it was more of a rollover. Yeah, it was a, and it, right. It was a rollover. Plus, it was conventional military. Talking yeah. about armor. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> Delta was there, but it really wasn't as much for you guys to do. We were hunting scuds. We weren't even going to be there at all because Schwarzkopf was not a fan of special ops. But then we went there, and and we were behind lines to basically to help you know keep the the uh, Iraqis from launching scuds into Israel. Got it. So that's that's what we were doing. All right. Us and British SAS. <clears throat> so yeah, it being as short as it was, that was you know more of a, a practice for you guys than anything. Mm -hmm. Different type of mission. Yeah, yeah. But then you had um, Somalia, 1993. Mm -hmm. 
October 3, October 3, 4, ended up it was really supposed to be just uh, a few minutes and 30, 30, 40 minutes in October 3. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that was not your squadron. Your C squadron. That was C squadron. Yeah, I was an A squadron. So, now, when did you go in? We went over act after October 3rd. I remember I was in the range shooting with, I think, Jerry Barnhart. Very cool. We were shooting with Jerry Barnhart, and then I remember we, it was like a Saturday or something, or, or Sunday, I came in, and I was shooting, and there was all kinds of cars at the compound. Like, What's going on? And they came out, and they said, hey, some things went sideways in Somalia and whatnot, and we ended up telling Jerry, hey, man, we got to cut you loose. We'll talk to you later. And we went in and got briefed, and we got spooled up, and we went over, I want to say, a couple of days later. <clears throat> okay. Got there the sixth, I believe. That was a uh, a hard lesson learned. Yeah, it, it, it was. And then, to me, the ultimate lesson out of that is you have to have a national command authority that is committed to the mission and committed to backing your troops, which we right. did not have. Right. The Clinton administration, the Secretary of Defense, we didn't have what we have now. I mean, people could say what they want about Donald Trump. But, I mean, I, I happen to like the guy. and There is no doubt he backs the military 100%. You don't have any question in your mind. Absolutely. At all. Zero. Zip. Well, we didn't have that in Somalia. Right. We had a guy in the White House and we had a Secretary of Defense who did not. You didn't have the commitment to back the guys on the ground like you, you do now. Well, that really, in my, when you boil it down in my mind, that is ultimately what sunk that whole thing. Right. I, I can see that. I can see that. Well, the, the, where were the pitfalls? Um, yes, they went in, they secured the uh, assets they were supposed to grab. Uh, they got them. They, they were, the right ones were there at, at, the, at the point where they thought they'd be. Okay. First bird goes down. Well, and there they, they had this mindset, even to take, they took a page out of Vietnam where everything was limited engagement. Yes. It wasn't, you're either going to go over and find this guy or you're not. Mm-hmm. you're going in with a handful of guys to do this and do that right no you either go in with overwhelming force which the united states military is known for or you don't go in at all you know you don't revisit vietnam right with this limited engagement thing or this limited participation and in the film even though the film was more of a hollywood glorified version of, of the mark bowden book um which was the book was supposed to be pretty spot on for what uh, happened everybody I, I, I've talked to guys in the C Squadron, and they said that book is as good as any after-action report. Right. In fact, the book was superbly done. They say the book really ended up being the after-action report. Yes, the report. book was outstanding. Because um, what wasn't it on the, they all got back, and then there was an incoming mortar that ended up killing. Yeah, I killed a good friend of mine, Matt Ryerson. And then. Yeah, I talked to him about 30 minutes before that happened. And then more recently, my God, just a few years ago, his son. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, was that was during yeah. the get together for Yeah, that was bad. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. I, I felt bad for the son. I also really felt yeah, bad for terrible. his wife. I mean, Jesus. But uh, getting back to back then, you, you had the mission going well, bird goes down, okay? Well, where is the support now for our troops? Yeah. None. Right. I mean, it's, like, These, oh, wait, it's all, and you got to go to a foreign military, you got to get APCs. It was, yeah. it was a train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, hey, UN forces, can can you help us? That was a joke. I mean, the whole thing was just sad. We, there were so many ask. layers of bad ideas. Yeah. <clears throat> and I remember somebody came over, and it, it might have been Downing, said, you, your plan should not require 
and and rest on the valor of your men. You know, your plan should be able to something that can be implemented and put into place that doesn't require you know guys to do above and beyond. Right. You know, to get the job done. Now, but now could it also be said that that was such a true test of our soldiers that the Delta guys, they did what they were set out to do. The Rangers, a lot of the Rangers, the younger Rangers, maybe were not prepared. They, well, it was, tra- it was warfare they were not trained in, and they weren't, you know what I mean? Sure. It, that whole urban warfare, Delta had done a lot of it. Of course, Delta had tons of lessons learned out of it, needless to say. But the Rangers had not been trained in that stuff. That was something that they had not really had the correct training in, the urban warfare piece of that. Right, right. Yeah, uh, correct. Yep. That's, yeah, that that had to be a, a That was real... a big lesson learned, and yeah. hence why you've got the Shugart Gordon Mount site down at Fort Polk and whatnot. So you got guys who died learning some of these lessons. So guys hopefully have got urban warfare training under their belt, and they're, they're getting exposed to, to lessons they're going to, you know, that are going to be painfully that were painfully learned in urban combat our streaming video subscribers of makeready.tv will now get exclusive access to the video versions of our podcasts in addition subscribers will have access to our episodes before they air on itunes or any other free platform Be sure to visit MakeReady.tv and subscribe today to stream our exclusive content to any device, anywhere, anytime. I'd like to give a shout out to one of our key sponsors, Walther Arms. We've had the pleasure of working with the folks at Walther on numerous projects. They've been a supporter of ours and we love what they make. Heck, we've even been out to their factory in Elm, Germany and had a chance to look behind the curtain and see what they have in the works and Got to admit, pretty impressed. So, thanks to the folks at Walther, we have a discount code for you. Looking for some clothing? Save 20% off. Use the code MAKEREADY during checkout. So now, what other time do you remember that was pivotal? I mean, obviously besides 9-11 happening, what other battle that either you were involved in or or have information on that you think would have been you know honestly uh, evolution of training you know training changed after panama because you had a lot of guys get combat and whatnot but it really training really changed after somalia that would have i would have to say that when you looked at how training was conducted in the military and special operations even in delta but in the military and special operations after Somalia, I'm sure till to now, it really changed. That was the watershed moment in training. Because mm-hmm. now you had, you know, special operations running urban training courses. You had different equipment, night fighting equipment that was seeing much wider dispersion, you know, in, in, in not only SF, but in Rangers. You, you just had a lot of a big, giant ripple effect. So you'd have to say, you know, a, a lot of guys died that those, you know, in the third and the fourth. And it was tragic, mm-hmm. but there were some serious lessons learned out of that. And then also you, you guys have survived and there's been um, lessons learned and stuff that's been carried forward that has had a big impact. 
that would definitely be one. And honestly, of the recent conflicts I can think of, a recent combat, that would be the one more than any would be Somalia. It would be the one that had the greatest impact in terms of the lessons learned and then the, the training that was carried forward out of that. So More so than Panama, certainly Desert Storm and all that stuff. But that was the one. That was That was the one that... You would, I mean, there was a lot of lessons learned out of Vietnam, but the problem there is, you know, you got in that post-Vietnam military, which was really drawn down, and it, a lot of that stuff, even though there was a lot of lessons learned, a lot of it didn't get carried forward like it probably should have. Right, right. You know what I mean? It, there was some people that did carry it forward, Vietnam vets and special ops, but Somalia was the one. Mm -hmm. That was really the one. That well, had, even with Vietnam, that was the first time we were really implementing helicopters mm -hmm. and uh, the Hueys. Uh, but then we also had the little birds then, mm -hmm. so uh, to a lesser degree, to, but, we, yeah. but we had more them reconnaissance then. and whatnot. Um, so then you fast forward to 9-11. It's, it's almost safe to say that when we look at post 9-11, those hard lessons learned through Somalia is what helped forge our soldiers to, to be oh, without a doubt. better. You've got equipment. Just look at what guys had equipment-wise and uniforms and whatnot at, at rolling into Somalia, and then look at what they had when they rolled in after 9-11. Right. Huge difference. Right. <clears throat> you know, not quite a decade later, but you're talking about a big difference in equipment, uniforms, weapons, mm -hmm. well, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what year did you get out? Uh, 03. Gra I graduated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, graduated. <laughs> Retired in December of 03. Oh, it was a parole. Yeah, parole, yeah. Parole. December of 03. Okay. Right, yep. So. 20 was, years, nine months. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's, that was mm -hmm. a long time. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first met you, we were doing IDPA at the um, Winter Nationals mm -hmm. at uh, Smith & Wesson. They don't even have that anymore. They don't? They, they even do the match? Then they stopped them. They stopped the Winter Nationals. Hmm. I think they uh, Smith & Wesson backed out of doing it. I don't know if they call it that now, but um, I remember back then we had our squad, our, our, our squad, you were on a different squad, and um, I remember that was the first time I met you. Then um, and fast forward, a few years later, we were doing clothing together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Who would ever think two guys were doing fashion? But it wasn't really fashion. I mean, hell, back then there was nothing out there that mm -hmm. was... 511, mm -hmm. the Royal Robins. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember that I would get pairs of pants from from Royal Robins at the time. And um, they, were, they didn't have shorts at the time. Mm -hmm. So my mom would actually make shorts mm -hmm. for us. And then the uh, pockets on the side, one would be higher than the other. Mm -hmm. And she'd rag on those pants. And she'd go, these are garbage. Where'd you buy them? What did you pay for these? And I, I, I ain't saying. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so yeah, they were shit. Um, then we started with the Woolrich Elite Series. Mm -hmm. um, you were one of our beta testers. Mm -hmm. I remember, oh my God, it was funny. The feedback I would get from you and 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 it was... it was Ken had it. Ken Hackett, yeah. Warren had it. We had Pat Rogers, you, Clint Smith, mm -hmm. Bob Young over at Gunsight, Dean Caputo out in California. My God, we had like, I think it was like 10 or 11 mm -hmm. beta testers that were... All the feedback from everybody came together to make a line of clothing. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, the EOTAC line, part of the Freedom Group, it ain't the Freedom Group anymore. You know, it's Remington, whatever, outdoors. But um, 
we took all your feedback and everyone else's feedback and then did like a Gen 2 version mm -hmm. of clothing. Then a few years later, I start the video production company. I step away from clothing, thank God. Garment trade was, was bad. Mm -hmm. um, Is it still bad? It's, it's gotten worse. Wow. Because when I was in it, when I first got in it, there was only one company out there. We all wore 511s. Mm -hmm. Our sneakers, our shoes are Adidas GSG9s. Mm -hmm. uh, wilderness belt. And whoever made a shoot me now vest, you know, mm -hmm. the, the tactical vest. Um, then we did a line of, of shirts and pants and then proper stepped in and true spec stepped in. And then we were like the first ones to do, um, covert discreet carry clothing. It was because of Dean Caputo that we did the mechanic shirt. Mm -hmm. We did a Cuban Guayabara shirt. We started going discreet and then all of a sudden I'm at shot and 511 has a whole line of discreet. discreet stuff. Yeah. I'll never forget when Costa came up to me, he says, oh, you're the copycat company. I'm like, dude, you didn't invent clothing. I'm sorry. <laughs> it didn't work that way. But then fast forward, you you want to get stuff made in the USA, mm -hmm. but everyone's a cheap bastard. So cry, they can get away with what they charge. People have always paid for what they get, you know, or what they charge for cry. But problem I always used to see was retail guys wouldn't want to spend more than 40 bucks for a pair of pants. Yeah. And if I was going to make them in the States, those pants would be 80 bucks. Yep. And people didn't want to pay that. Then China, Thailand, all these places, they started jacking up the prices. You know, what's interesting is now with this COVID-19, it'll be interesting to see what kind of effect that has on Made in the USA moving forward. Absolutely. The clothing side. Yeah. Granted, a lot of stuff is made overseas. But if, if you ever wonder how jaded or how uh, the, the, the scale is off on clothing... Look at the tags on your pants and shirts, and you'll find Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Not that long ago, having made in Vietnam on your clothing will get you an ass Oh, beating, yeah, big time. You know? It wasn't that long ago. So now you have made in Macau, Vietnam, Thailand, China, Hong Kong. I mean, every now and then some European place, but it's too expensive in Europe. Yeah. So uh, when I was doing this stuff with Woolrich, it was common to see the same shirt in one color from Macau and another color from Thailand. Never mm -hmm. made sense to me. But you're right, today, this ought to be a wake-up call for Americans. Yes. To say, fuck this, let's make this stuff in the States. I remember being in Australia and training with the Australian SAS years ago when I was in the Army, when we were in Delta, we went over and trained. And it was like everything you saw, hats, everything was made in Australia, mm -hmm. everything. I was like blown away by that. Stuff that you would never see you know, made in the USA on, you know, here. I mean, just the smallest stuff made in Australia. And I was like, why? Well, and you're talking about a country the size of the United States with a tiny fraction of the population. Sure. And they, they had all the stuff was made in Australia. And I went, hmm. Safe to say, national pride. Yeah. You know, and you, there's some, there's something to be said for that. I remember yeah. now I look back and go, yeah, it kind of, that, yeah, that kind of made an impression on me. I'm hoping that now people are gonna see, even now with the masks for the um, uh, COVID-19, where you're supposed to be out there wearing a mask, not necessarily a full respirator, but a mask. And they're being made in China. And now people are like, well, wait a minute, you know? This oh. is where this virus came from. Yeah, yeah. So I think people are gonna start, at least I hope, they're gonna start reevaluating where they get their stuff from and, and decide, you know, I'm gonna spend that extra $15. Mm -hmm. I'll get it from the US. Yep. 
because it was the U.S. manufacturers that got hammered by this. Yep. Everyone being shut down. I mean, now look at our uh, look at us in the gun industry. Uh, talk to folks at Kimber. Well, they shut down New York, so now they're not making guns. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, FN, thank God, they're still doing stuff here in South Carolina, but other manufacturers had to shut down because they couldn't get parts. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, those screws that you can't get for your grips or whatever it happens to be. Oh yeah, the smallest part. Yeah. That's the holdup. So it's gonna be interesting to see the dynamic now when the industry comes back mm -hmm. and now the, the gun buying craziness. Oh my God. Oh, it's unbelievable. The month of March, record sales. Yeah. I mean, like ever. Yeah, yeah. In the history of the yeah, firearms industry, yeah. never. There's been more guns sold in March than any month in history. I mean, we thought Obama was great for our industry. This China virus thing, COVID-19, COVID man, boy, it just turned everything upside down. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. You had untold thousands of new gun owners. You people a couple months ago would have never owned a gun, now are buying them, ammo. It, it's, it's wild. Now, what that's going to do is it's going to take and put a little bit of a strain, a good strain, on the training community because, my God, we've never had that many new gun owners. Oh, yeah, and, right. And they, they don't know how to use them. Yep. You know, so, um, and something you and I were talking about earlier, and you're spot on. We as, as gun industry folks, you a trainer, me not a trainer, but we as gun industry folks have to welcome in these new gun owners. Yep. And make sure they don't, we don't talk down to them. Absolutely. You know, and they get welcome into the fold, so to speak. Yep. And get reminded, learn how to shoot this thing. Learn how to shoot it. And now you understand, I'm hoping you understand now why we were so adamant about this thing called the Second Amendment. Yes. And yes. now we hope, you know, you're, you're, you understand where we're coming from and you need to be safe and you need to learn how to use this thing safely. But yeah, you need, it's time now to be the ambassador, to be the brand ambassador, to be yeah. the, the second amendment ambassador. Yeah. Yeah. Especially now when you have each state trying to say, well, look, let's suspend it for now. Oh, wait, who gave you the authority? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you want to close a liquor store, but you, you're not going to shut down the second amendment just mm -hmm. because, Bingo. you know, so, you know, we're in interesting times now. Big time. We and don't know what the future gives we us. Don't, we don't have any idea. No. And now they're talking about how they're supposed to be bringing back, or not bringing back, but there'll be this new wave uh, sometime around November or into the winter of the COVID coming back. Yeah. So. I, I, we'll see. Uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, it could be. It could be the new normal for us. I hope not. Yeah. You we'll know. see. I think they're all guessing right now. Yeah. So now. Yeah. What is LAV going to be doing moving forward? Well, classes will start back up here. Um, I got a class done in Texas, the end of May. Okay. So it's gonna we're gonna start easing back into the classes. Got Good. books, you know, Vickers Guide, coffee table books. Our AR fifteen volume one has been sold out for quite a while. It's being redone into a second edition, and it's gonna be you know announced shortly, and then for pre sale, and then it'll be shipping later this year. Cool. So we got more books coming, you know, things along those lines. Still look, always looking at parts and accessories that make sense for Glocks, SIGs, HK, stuff that makes sense to bring to the table. Just, just not another gadget. Right. Something right. that actually has value. It may not be something everybody wants to buy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, not my thing, but I understand why that, you know, that's what we're looking for. Makes sense. Always looking for something like that. So now when are you going to do the definitive box set? all your books 
Yeah, people ask about that. Dude. All the time. People will pay for that. Yeah, the box set. Well, one, they got to all be in stock. And be one hell of a damn box. Yeah, it would be huge. <laughs> and then, because right now, the Air 15's out, and 1911 is sold out, I want to say. Well, now, how time. many books do you have total now? Now, seven. Seven? Seven. Dude. That's a lot of books. Seven, yeah. Seven. Yeah. Seven yeah. titles. Okay, so, all right, so here we are. Seven. So you have another one in the works now? Well, yes, we, we've got a SIG book that's in the works for this holiday. SIG volume one is in the books, in the in the works for this holiday season with AR-15 volume one, second edition, a reprint enhanced, greatly enhanced second edition will be out a little bit later this year. So, so okay. that would be, that's one of the seven. It's just out of print right now. I'm gonna throw the gauntlet down and put the challenge out there. When you get to 10. 10, the 10 book. 10, the 10 box set. Yes, yes, autographed, limited edition. Box Number, set of 10. Yeah, I, I think that's it. Dude. I know. <laughs> It'll be I, one heavy box, dude. dude. You gotta those, autograph each one too. Yeah, no okay. box, because those books are not light. It doesn't come in a cardboard box. It comes in a nice finished yeah. wood box. Yeah. Come on, like cherry. Yeah, cherry. You know, or, or walnut, you know, come on. Yeah. I think we could do this, Yeah. you know. Never say never, man, that's for look, sure. Look, folks, here's what you need to do. You need to email Larry. Mm -hmm. You need to call Larry in his cell. We'll give you his cell phone, his personal cell phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you need to call Larry and say, I want the 10 book set. 10 book set, yeah. And I want it autographed. And I want each book autographed and say, and can you also autograph? Personalize them. Personalize each one, yeah. Well, at least, no, one, one letter. Cover one letter. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You crazy bastard, you bought all 10. You bought all 10. <laughs> well, good look, dude, it was good yeah. having a chance to sit down with you. Uh, Thank we have you. A lot of stuff in the works in the future, and we just finished yeah. filming some stuff here. And um, as always, good to see you. Good to see you. I appreciate it, brother. Glad to have you here. Take care, folks. For more on the Make Ready videos from Pantio, head over to makeready.tv, pantio.com. Subscribe, check out our content. There's a lot there. When you get a chance, go to amazon.com or any other place you'd like to get your books from and check out Six Minutes to Freedom, written by Kurt Muse and John Gilstrap. Definitely worth a read. Probably something you didn't know about. Probably something you didn't know about until you listened or watched this podcast. Pantio.